Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming to today's Cato Institute Capitol Hill briefing. I'm Kurt Couchman, Manager of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute. Um, you don't need me to tell you that uh, health care has seemed to be the, been the predominant issue of the past month or two, but uh, that certainly doesn't mean that the climate change legislation has gone away. In fact, yesterday, National Journal's Congress Daily AM reported that Senate Environment and Public Works Chairman Barbara Boxer and uh, Foreign Relations Chairman John Kerry will introduce their climate bill later this month and mark it up shortly afterwards. Also, Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio and others are drafting trade protections for manufacturers, and Brown is meeting with Boxer on that issue next week, he said. And of course, the House passed H.R. 2454, the American Clean Energy and Security Act of 2009, at the end of June, which includes the provisions that bring us to today's event. Now, clearly, the discussion of climate change and what to do about it is a very broad and wide-ranging discussion. And uh, it incorporates a, a lot of scientific evidence and uh, analysis of people's different risk preferences, as well as a number of costs and benefits to various plans for action. So uh, Cato has published an awful lot of good material on these different areas, but today we want to focus very narrowly on the impact of uh, climate legislation on um, on the implications for global prosperity and international harmony. We have three distinguished speakers today, and then we'll move into some Q&A. Uh, our first speaker today is Sally James. She's a policy analyst with Cato's Center for Trade Policy Studies and the author of the paper that is the occasion for today's event. Uh, that is A Harsh Climate for Trade, How Climate Change Proposals Threaten Global Commerce. You should have picked up a copy on your way in. Uh, before joining Cato in 2006, Dr. James was an executive officer in the Office of Trade Negotiations in the Australian Department's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, working on industrial market access negotiations. Prior to that, she was a senior policy advisor in the Australian, Department's, uh, in the Australian Government's Department of Agriculture, Fisheries, and Forestry. Dr. James. Thanks, Kurt, and thank you, everybody, for coming. Uh, I'd like to especially thank my three co-panelists, uh, Clayton and Gary, are two of my favorite people in Washington, and definitely two uh, of the, the best trade policy analysts we, we have here. So thank you very much, both of you, for coming. Uh, as Kurt indicated, what I'd like to talk to you today about is uh, the, the, the trade provisions uh, in the Waxman-Markey uh, bill that was passed by the House in June and, and similar types of provisions that are being mooted for the, the bill that the Senate will take up uh, as soon as they're done with health care, whenever that may be. Specifically, what I'm going to be arguing today um, is that the trade uh, parts of these bills are going to be ineffective at uh, preventing leakage I'll explain what that means in a minute. They're going to be harmful to the US economy and to the global trading system more broadly, and I think counterproductive to obtaining international agreement on climate change. First of all, I want to talk about this concept of, of leakage, which is basically uh, the process whereby emissions uh, reductions policies in, say, the United States result in increased production and emissions in less regulated countries. In other words, firms will react to new policies here by moving production abroad, uh, thereby causing job losses, 
uh, here in the United States and perhaps undermining the very reduction uh, commitments that the United States is trying to get. But there have been uh, a number of studies have shown that energy costs are a relatively small part of firms' decision about where to, to locate. A Brookings scholar by the name of Jason Bordoff had a paper um, earlier this year about, uh, that, that shows about only 10% of emissions would leak. And the border measures that are ostensibly uh, supposed to stop this process would prevent only about half a percentage point of that leakage that would otherwise occur. In other words, leakage, the concept of leakage is, is overblown and the ability of border measures to prevent it is overhyped. Um, let me just look at some numbers here. This shows, uh, these are US International Trade Commission numbers. Um, those of you who are interested, I can show you the, the CITSI codes that I've used here. But what this shows is the share of US imports from these countries. And, and this, this is, a, I guess, an amalgam of, of tables that are, that are in the paper you should have collected today. What it shows is that China, which is, you know, kind of the unspoken target of a lot of these measures, is actually a source of 17% of US steel imports. And as you can see, apart from chemicals, which to some extent are determined by the natural resources and therefore not kind of about costs necessarily, OECD is by far the biggest source of imports of these goods. So China is not the competition in, in, the, in kind of that, that sense of the word. And this is interesting too. This is from a, a, a government accounting office uh, study that came out after my paper had kind of started the production process. So it's not quoted, but this, the study number is down the bottom there in quite small numbers. It's a really interesting study of these issues. What this shows is US imports as a share of foreign output for 2007, except I think it's iron and steel that are for 2006, but oh, I'd need to check that. But basically, fairly recent trade figures, they show, for example, that less than 1% of China's total Chinese output, if you look at the China line there, less than 1%, so a maximum of 0.9 in cement, of Chinese output of these products is imported or exported to the United States. What that says, increasing tariffs on these goods will not necessarily harm China. It's a very small percentage of their output that would be subject to these kind of punitive tariffs. So it wouldn't necessarily encourage them to do anything that we want them to do, such as adopt emission reduction standards, or in the sense of levelling the playing field, which is what a lot of these things are about. I, I think they're really interesting numbers. I think they, they need to be taken into account when we're talking about what really are these measures trying to do. Also, um, is it clear that, that China and India are doing less? Uh, Thomas Friedman, no less, had an op-ed in the New York Times yesterday praising China's efforts uh, at, uh, to become more energy efficient. Uh, India and China certainly have more stringent fuel efficiency standards, uh, and the US uh, is not talking about emissions limits on, say, cars yet. So while Chinese factories may be spewing you know, an increasing amount of uh, greenhouse gases, what, what matters for climate change, we're told, is the total emissions, not single source controls. So much for the idea of leakage then. How, how are these measures that I'm talking about today harmful? Well, my basic premise is that they could increase the risk of retaliation and or litigation. 
Uh, first of all, Waxman Markey contains uh, output-based allowances, which are, uh, I would argue, subsidies. The WTO includes in its definition of subsidies, and this is overlooked by a lot of people, revenue foregone. In other words, it's not just the government giving a budgetary outlay to certain firms or industries. It's including revenue that they otherwise would have collected. Uh, so in other words, if allowances are given away free, that could possibly meet the definition of a WTO subsidy. Certainly if the allowance was, were then sold at a profit and the company keeps the money, that, that, that would be a subsidy. Since the subsidies, as they're currently structured, would be targeted towards some firms and not others, they would be specific, which is one of the criteria for determining whether a subsidy breaks WTO rules. If the free allowances led to US firms producing more than they what they otherwise would uh, and harming trade partners' interests, then the WTO would likely rule it illegal. Uh, another provision that that tests some of the subsidy rules in the WTO in, in Waxman-Markey was financial assistance for automobiles developed and produced in the United States. That, to me, suggests problems for local content schemes. Um, of course, that, that could cover, you know, the many important foreign-owned uh, auto factory, uh, factories in the United States, Toyota, Honda, uh, Hyundai. They are also based here. They provide many American jobs. To what extent would they be um, allowed to these, uh, this assistance is a question uh, that could have relevance for WTO, but I think it's something worth keeping in mind. For an environmental perspective as well, rebates or, or free allowances have zero environmental justification. To the extent that the WTO allows for environmental exceptions to usual trade rules, and I'll be going over these in a second, there must be a clear link between the measure and the environmental purpose. Protecting domestic industries from adverse competitive effects is not a legitimate purpose in that respect. That's certainly true of border measures um, as well. I, I won't go through all the legal points that uh, carbon tariffs, as they kind of are in the functional sense, uh, raise. They're, they're covered in fairly summary form in, in the paper, although there's extensive references to other places, and uh, in quite a lot of detail in this excellent book by Gary and, and two co-authors, uh, Steve Charnowitz and Jason Kim. Isn't that magnanimous of me to promote somebody else's book on the day I'm launching my paper? But it really is excellent, and it covers many of the important legal issues. We could have a three-day conference on the legal issues of this alone. Uh, but the US has agreed, indeed pushed for, uh, some clear principles in international trade that have served the US well. Concepts such as national treatment, that is, that once goods have crossed the border, the imports should be treated the same as, as domestic goods. Uh, most favoured nation, treating like products from WTO members equally. Uh, whether or not products with different uh, energy profiles are considered like is a key question. I want to make that clear. It is analysed in the paper somewhat. Uh, another principle is not to increase tariffs above what the contractual limits say they should be. It is true that the WTO allows for border tax adjustments, but the proposed scheme I submit is not a tax. It may be functionally equivalent to a tax. No, what's wrong? Uh, even if it will have the effect of increasing firms' costs. Uh, it's also true that the WTO allows for exceptions to the general principles I've just gone over, uh, for example, to protect the environment. That, that is true. 
but there are some conditions placed on members who want to use those exceptions and I'm not convinced that the border measures uh, being spoken of comply with those conditions. Basically, the appropriate, and I use that word in, in, in inverted commas, the appropriate quantity of reserve allowances that importers have to buy to kind of cover their products appear to be based on cost differences, as it's written in the Waxman-Markey Bill at least, rather than emission differences. So in other words, the amount, whether a country is signed on to an emission limiting agreement that is deemed to be equivalent to the US is relevant. But it's, it, it appears to be based on cost differences uh, and that's a red flag. The appellate body of the WTO, that's the highest kind of legal body, has set a precedent for allowing unilateral discrimination to conserve natural resource. Uh, but the way the measure is applied is crucial. There are practical problems with discriminating in this way. Here's a few of them. First of all, discriminate, discriminating on the basis of national emission averages doesn't seem sufficiently precise. It doesn't allow for differences among firms. If you're a Chinese firm who happens to be producing very efficiently, perhaps more energy efficiently than a US firm, if you are... Uh, it will be discriminatory to give them the same carbon tariff than, a, a, than the national average. There's two problems with that. Well, first of all, legally, uh, there's WTO cases that show that the way that a carbon, uh, that the exceptions are applied, uh, if they don't allow for recourse or review, that's going to be a legal problem. Environmentally, think of it this way. Why would a firm produce in a more environmentally efficient manner and thus, let's assume, more costly manner if they don't get tar tariff-level credit for it. For example, let's pretend this dysfunctional microphone right here is from China, if, and it normally attracts a 10%, I shouldn't say China because I'm not implying anything about the quality of Chinese goods, but let's say it normally attracts a 10% tariff. If you could produce it in a really efficient way, that adds cost to your firms, but you're still going to get hit with a 10% tariff, why would you change the energy efficiency of your production? What I'm, what I'm suggesting here is that the incentive structure is actually against producing in a more environmentally efficient manner. I go over that in the paper too. On the other hand, the alternative doesn't seem practicable. So in other words, what I'm saying is discriminating on a national basis doesn't seem fair. Well, you ask any customs official what the bane of their existence is and they will tell you rules of origin. That is determining where a good comes from in this day of global supply chains. Well, you ask them now that not only do you have to discriminate on the basis of the country of origin, you must discriminate on the basis of the firm of origin because the People's Microphone Company produces in a very environmentally efficient way and they should get tariff credit for that. It's going to be a nightmare. Can you imagine the data requirements determine the level of carbon embedded in a product? How much carbon is produced by this firm producing this product? How would politicians assess whether or not a country has taken sufficient measures uh, to reduce carbon and therefore does not need to cover their products by a carbon allowance? I'm not sure, and you'll be shocked for, for a, to hear a Cato scholar say this, that politicians have fully thought through the implications of what they're proposing. <laughs> I think retaliation is also a real concern. Um, 
basically, even if something is is uh, legal grey area, it's certainly true that developing countries have rejected calls for carbon tariffs. Uh, except occasionally China does say, well, if the United States wants to protect the environment, it's its consumers which are forcing us to produce all this stuff, they should pay an extra tariff. Occasionally they raise that argument. The other point that a lot of developing countries make, I think it's equally valid, uh, is that per capita emissions are higher in the rich countries, per capita emissions, and that would seem an equally justified basis on which to, uh, to start a carbon tariff scheme. Uh, United States firms would lose out in that metric because US is, is, a, is a high per capita emitter. Just want to, uh, my last point is about the counterproductivity of these measures. Developing countries, as I've said, led by, led by China and India, have resisted very strongly attempts to coerce them into signing this agreement. Climate change, the extent it's an international problem, will be needed, uh, will be, uh, need to be tackled internationally through consensus, alienating two of our bigger, uh, fastest-growing economies, two of the fastest emitters, for that matter, is not a good start for achieving international cooperation. And I think it will undermine the, the efforts that the Obama administration has made to engage China on this issue, and they're significant. Uh, developing countries argue they have taken steps uh, to reduce emissions themselves, but they shouldn't have to pay for, you know, the sins of the industrial countries past. They shouldn't have to sacrifice their own development to the extent it depends on cheap and abundant fuel. At least many of them are insisting on significant resources in the form of cash or technology transfer if they're going to reduce emissions. That's something to keep in mind. What can governments do then? Well, I, I would argue they could liberalise trade in environmental goods and services. That's part of the Doha mandate to make special uh, attention to, re to reduce trade barriers on these goods. I think the US, to the extent the Doha mandate is uh, struggling, the US could lower tariffs and, and adjust technical requirements on those goods right away. Um, we could uh, reduce tariffs on solar water heaters and biogas <laughs> tanks, things like that. Removing subsidies, fuel subsidies, subsidies that encourage overproduction, till farming, uh, there's something we should, we should look at as well and something that is well within the US's uh, government's power to do something about. Um, I'll just make one short point about whether or not the WTO is the place for environmental agreements. Gary and I might disagree on the nuance of this. Um, I think the WTO agenda is burdened already. The Doha round is struggling, as I've said. I think there's a risk of undermining the legitimacy of the WTO. The WTO starts... Uh, issuing rulings that uh, reduce the ability of, of governments to uh, put carbon tariffs on. The environmental NGOs are not going to like that. To the extent they allow carbon tariffs-free traders like myself will reject these sorts of findings that seem to legitimise trade barriers. Thank you, people's uh, <laughs> factory. I, I wonder about a carbon peace clause. Gary might go into this a little bit about allowing countries to implement trade barriers and having a gentleman's agreement not to take any WTO cases. I think that's really worrying. I worry about the WTO bringing in other issues if other countries say, well, I want a peace clause on human rights. I, I, I just think it, it, could, it could spiral. The WTO is the World Trade Organization. It's not a donors conference. It's not an environmental NGO. I think we need to be very careful here. 
I think most. Way, I, I also think it's unlikely. I don't. I can't see developing countries going along with uh, really trying to formalise the uh, WTO's environmental agenda in that way. So just in conclusion, I, I just hope I've made clear today that I think lawmakers should think very carefully uh, before using trade measures in climate policy. I think the WTO exceptions on environmental regulation do not provide the leeway that some policymakers think they do. I think that trade measures, there's a, there's a real danger that they could lead to retaliation, to litigation. I've talked about the economic and international relations damage for what the evidence to me suggests is, is little for kind of little competitive benefit, if you like. Thank you. Thank you, Sally. Our next speaker today is Dr. Gary Huffbauer. He has been the Reginald Jones Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics since 1992. Uh, for those of you who aren't already familiar with the Peterson Institute, it is a private, non nonprofit, nonpartisan research institution, much like Cato, but devoted specifically to the study of international economic policy. He has also worked at the Council on Foreign Relations. Georgetown University as Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Trade and Investment Policy of the U.S. Treasury and as Director of the International Tax Staff at the Treasury Department. Huffbauer has written extensively on international trade, investment, and tax issues. He is co-author, co-editor, or author of a total of 24 books, most recently Global Warming and the World Trading System, as Sally pointed out, Maghreb Regional and Global Integration, A Dream to be Fulfilled, and Economic Sanctions Reconsidered, third edition. Dr. Hoffbauer. Thanks very much for inviting me. And uh, I'd like to suggest maybe the people in the back, there are seats up in front, so it certainly won't disturb me if you come on up and uh, take one of the seats. Um, well, Sally has given an excellent uh, presentation, and uh, uh, I should mention that Australia... Uh, the, the government probably was cooked by, by Sally when she was in the government before, but um, the, the government has said it is not going to put on import restraints uh, in the name of uh, carbon. However, uh, there are baked in the cake in this country, in the Waxman Markey, in, in Europe, and in Australia, uh, plenty of assists for industry which could be interpreted, as Sally has rightly said, as uh, subsidies so that there are trade issues even if all countries followed the Australian example and put on no import restrictions. What I want to do in just a few minutes, um, and since Sally's covered much of the ground, I, can, I think I can be pretty fast, is try to just lay out the tableau of possible international Responses. I'm talking about international organization responses to the trade issues, which I think are, as I said, baked in the cake in terms of uh, assist to industries. But um, it's still an open question on how much, how many barriers will be put on imports. So let me turn the slide here and see if that's okay. One, one approach would be to have the UN, um, uh, you know, climate change group uh, deal with this. And it could act multilaterally to create norms. As everyone here knows, there's a big meeting in Copenhagen in <laughs> December. Um, 
If it establishes principles, they would very likely be considered by the WTO when the same issue came up. And there is the example of the um, U.S. shrimp case uh, where the WTO reflected on a decision of uh, the Rio Declaration. Now, at a recent um, Copenhagen pre-meeting, India proposed a paragraph which would bar any import restrictions, and that got quite a bit of play in the press. The United States demurred, and I suppose other uh, industrial countries also demurred, so that's still an open question. But coming to the kind of bold type at the end, uh, my conclusion, and maybe some of my colleagues would agree with this, is that it will be very hard in the Copenhagen context for countries to agree on on binding rules that define a trade framework. It's conceivable, and if they did, it would I think get a lot. Those rules would get a lot of respect, but. When you think about the complexity of what's going to go on in Copenhagen and the huge divisions between the parties, to get down into the nitty-gritty of trade rules when there are not going to be trade ministers at the forefront of these negotiations seems to me a stretch. So let me turn now to the WTO. And I, I heard what Sally said. She wants the WTO to keep hands off. But, but like the courts in the United States and most countries, if a case comes to the WTO, it's, you know, it can't say go home. It's supposed to adjudicate cases that, uh, that governments bring to the WTO. So uh, the straightforward way of resolving all the unresolved questions now would be a case-by-case uh, resolution of disputes which are, I think, almost certain to come up. I've already said about the... Uh, the industrial assists, but uh, we may very well get import uh, measures as well. So uh, there are a lot of issues to be resolved, and the case um, literature, which uh, Sally was kind enough to refer to her book, and I appreciate the run out and buy it. Uh, please, uh, sales are not that brisk. Um, <laughs> um, there are a lot of unresolved issues. There are not very many cases that the WTO has so far decided which have an environmental flavor. There are some, but not a lot. So this this list I've given, I'm not going to run through it, it kind of suggests all the open questions, which would be before, in the first instance, the WTO panels, and the second instance, the appellate body. Um, let me just um, mention maybe two or three towards the end. Uh, you know, how much deference would it give to principles enunciated by another body, the UNFCC uh, C being the, the principal one, the WTO is not obligated, be very clear on this, not obligated to give deference to another international organization, but it has in the past. So how much deference? Then how to measure the trade impact? That's, that's not an easy task at all, and uh, that, that would be a big open question. In, in the famous U.S. shrimp turtle case, um, the U.S. did do some negotiation with other countries before it uh, put on its rules about uh, turtle excluder devices, so-called TEDs. But how much is good faith negotiation? That's unresolved as yet. What is a good faith negotiation before you come in and say, well, we negotiated with these six countries, but, you know, China and India, they weren't there, so whammo, they're going to get uh, restrictions. And then coming importantly to this chapeau of Article 20. Now, people who have 
been very prominent in uh, in uh, discussions before the Congress have taken uh, quite a bit of uh, paid quite a bit of attention to Article 20, the so-called general exceptions article of the WTO, which allows measures to be to be taken uh, in um, in violation of all the other provisions of the WTO if they deal with the human and animal safety and so forth. There's no question that the uh, environmental issues. I think there's no question the environmental issue is one that is within the scope of uh, Article uh, B and G of uh, Article 20. But the important thing is not the content, or not that part, but the chapeau of Article 20. And it's this language about uh, arbitrary or, or unjustifiable discrimination, disguised restriction on trade. In the past, this has been interpreted quite strictly by the WTO. Now, stare decisis does not apply within the WTO in a strict sense, though in fact they are quite respectful of prior case decisions, uh, but they would be open to have another interpretation. However, just to just briefly mention, uh, the most recent case was the Brazilian tires case, and Brazil said, uh, gee, well, we can allow these used tires to be imported from Argentina because we have a Mercosur agreement. And the WTO said, no, the Mercosur agreement doesn't apply to WTO obligations to the EU. You lose. That was arbitrary and unjustifiable, even though it was justified in Brazilian mind by the Mercosur agreement. They've been very strict on that. And for that reason, I've been a little skeptical of those who have testified to Congress that, um, you know, um, anything goes under the WTO, or almost anything goes. Now, another point on the case-by-case -case approach, uh, which, as I say, is the default and is the most likely approach that the WTO would take. It'll take a long time before we have clear guidelines, because cases take a while, three, four years, depending on the um, complexity, and these would be complex. But then the WTO, and I think this is what Sally may have been alluding to, I mean, it has a very difficult balancing act to play if it's case-by-case -case arbitration. If it's too lenient, there will be lots of opportunistic protection. There's a lot that you can do in the name of, you know, protecting against climate change, which in fact will be protecting against imports um, or subsidizing exports. But on the other hand, if the appellate body is too strict, as Sally alluded, you will get an awful lot of NGOs saying, you know, why, why is this secret body in, in Geneva you know, leading to the ruination of the planet. So th it's, a, it's quite a balancing act they would have in deciding all these issues. Now, turning to another approach, which, which I favor, but I, I wouldn't predict it's necessarily going to happen, is the code approach, where like-minded countries, which would only probably a handful to begin with, would negotiate a new code, and it could have it as an annex to the WTO, and it would define the space of policy measures between those countries. It would not be binding on countries that didn't sign for kind of obvious international law reasons. To be effective, it should include all the big emitters, and that is certainly not an easy task. Um, and I think the easiest like-minded group is sort of Australia, U.S., Canada, Japan, few other industrial countries, but uh, would not include China and India. 
the danger, and I, I, I do want to highlight it here, if we have a code of just the industrial countries, um, the other countries could create their own code. And as Sally said, it could emphasize different principles. And the two principles which get a lot of play are the historic accumulated record of emissions and the per capita emissions. And if you do it on those either of those two bases as opposed to equal cost or, you know, equal effort today, here and now, you will get a different code, and then you'll have quite a split in the system. Now, technically, one could have an amendment or waiver of the WTO. This is a very difficult process. I'm going to just pass over that. Uh, it seems pretty unlikely to me. And then, um, let's see, I think yeah, uh, the, the stick to your knitting, which um, which Sally mentioned, would be, um, you know, get the, get the WTO back on the environmental goods and services, which makes a lot of sense, but it doesn't answer the, the disputes, which I think will, will likely come forward. But it certainly makes a lot of sense here and now, and there are some important classification issues that can be done. And I guess my final point in this meeting today is that I think there's some merit in talking about the peace clause, and I, I guess I wouldn't characterize it quite in the same way that, that Sally may have, which is my view of a peace clause, it would be a time period uh, during which countries which have, um, which are going through legislation, if they have some kind of import component to it, uh, they, they take quite a bit of time before it goes into effect. Uh, maybe it's there in the year 2020, uh, but there's flexibility and so forth, so as to give these other processes time to work. But I, I do want to point out the disadvantages of a, of a peace clause, and it might very well dilute the effort not only of the countries which have the clause, but of other countries as well in uh, limiting GHG emissions, and that has to be honestly recognized. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Huffbauer. Our next speaker today is Ambassador Clayton Yeiter. He practices in the international trade and food and agriculture areas as a senior advisor at the Hogan and Hartson Law Firm. He came to the firm in 1993 after having served in cabinet and sub-cabinet posts under four U.S. presidents. He was the U.S. Trade Representative from 1985 to 1988, where he helped negotiate the U.S.-Canada Free Trade Agreement, the precursor to NAFTA. He also helped launch the 100-nation Uruguay round of trade negotiations, which resulted in the creation of the World Trade Organization. Uh, while USTR, Ambassador Yeiter broadened the U.S. trade agenda to include negotiations in services, intellectual property, and agriculture. Amb Ambassador Yeiter also served as Secretary of Agriculture from 19 1989 to 1991, laying the groundwork for a, for a more, more market-oriented policy structure in American agriculture. In 1991, he was elected Republican National Committee Chairman, and a year later, President Bush I persuaded him to return to the administration as counselor to the president. Prior to all of that, he was president and chief executive officer of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange from 1978 to 1985. He also held two assistant secretary of agriculture posts under President Nixon and then served as deputy special trade representative under President Ford. Ambassador Yeager. In other words, if you stay around Washington long enough, you get a lot of jobs. 
thanks. It's nice to be here and uh, great to be on the podium with both uh, Sally James and Gary Huffbauer. And by the way, uh, uh, I recommend both their uh, work products to you, Gary's book and, uh, and Sally's paper. Uh, both of them are exceptionally well done. So if you don't have them, uh, go get them and, uh, and put them to good use. Uh, I'd like to uh, you know, back up a little bit and maybe uh, provide a, just a, some quick perspective to, uh, to this uh, and then add a few comments uh, as a supplement to what Gary and Sally have said. And by the way, bo- both of those were excellent uh, presentations. Uh, the first one would be, uh, you know, uh, should you have any legislation at all uh, in this area? And we don't have time to debate that point uh, here today. I think you have to assume that it's been the conclusion of the of the leadership of the Congress and the uh, leadership of the administration that they want to uh, proceed with uh, such legislation. Not everybody in the country or everybody in the Congress agrees with that. But I think you can, you know, it's it certainly... Uh, uh, is a enough of a possibility and maybe a probability uh, that it deserves focus by everybody in this room and a lot of other people around the country. Uh, so uh, I proceed on the assumption that uh, uh, there will be a serious effort at legislating uh, on climate change here in the United States, and, and that deserves uh, uh, effective thought uh, processes uh, by all of us, whether we be Democrat uh, or Republican. Uh, then secondly, it becomes a matter of uh, what are the basic options, and there are really only two. Uh, one is a carbon tax, and two is uh, what has typically been called cap and trade. Uh, you, we can argue the merits and demerits of both of those approaches, and we don't have time to do that again today either. Uh, but suf- uh, suffice it to say that uh, uh, I happen, even as a Republican, happen to agree that as between those two approaches, I'd rather see the United States proceed uh, with a cap-and-trade uh, uh, system rather than a carbon tax, uh, providing we do uh, cap-and-trade properly. And I think that's the real challenge. How do you develop cap-and-trade uh, uh, in the right way? Uh, clearly, President Obama is a strong believer in uh, cap-and-trade. I don't see him changing his mind. Uh, and lo- looking at it purely from a political standpoint, I don't see that a carbon tax uh, has any chance at all of uh, enactment here in this country. It's just a a non-starter. So the question then really for the proponents of climate change legislation is can you design a cap-and-trade system uh, that can generate the support and approval uh, of the U.S. and and then the rest of the world in terms of the international context that you've been discussing here today? Uh, Well, uh, that's enough as, as sort of a preface to this. Then as you look at the key issues, we don't have time to focus on, uh, on any but two or three. Uh, the one that has mostly a domestic orientation but has some international implications to it is the question of how you handle allowances, if you will, or permits. Uh, that is a major headache. Uh, and clearly there are a whole variety of ways that, this can be han- that allowances can be handled. But as Sally pointed out in her presentation, Uh, It gets complicated when you decide whether you're going to base allowances on historical uh, emissions of greenhouse gases in a particular plant or a particular industry, uh, or uh, whether you're going to uh, uh, to sell the allowances. And if you sell the allowances, where does the revenue go? Are you going to give uh, some of them away? If so, on what basis do do you give them away? And as Sally mentioned, uh, do you permit people who have been given allowances for free, uh, do you permit them to sell them? 
Uh, and if you do, have you created a major uh, trade issue there because of the uh, subsidy code in the WTO? Those are uh, just uh, a, a smattering of the issues that arise in this whole issue of distributing allowances. Uh, you folks are on congressional staff here, uh, House or Senate, even with the House having passed this legislation, are going to have to work through that, as are your principals. Uh, and all my only counsel is to say, you know, just be careful. Uh, the more complicated uh, uh, you make this, uh, the more likely uh, you are to uh, stimulate challenges uh, in the WTO on, uh, from a subsidy uh, challenge basis. Uh, so uh, be careful about how the allowance program is ultimately put together. Uh, one of the uh, entities on whose boards uh, I sit is the Chicago Climate Exchange. So I've been somewhat involved in all of this uh, as a result of that uh, assignment. Uh, CCX uh, uh, has uh, you know, one of the most significant uh, greenhouse gas emission programs that exists in the world today. Uh, and it's relatively simple. Um, the, the total pages of regulations of uh, the Chicago Commodity Exchange would number about 20, I think, c compared to the uh, House legislation at, uh, what, 1,400 pages, uh, Sally? And, uh, you know, I don't know that you can get uh, congressional legislation down to 20 pages, uh, but maybe you can get a lot closer to 20 uh, than to 1,400, and we'd probably be a whole lot better off uh, in terms of administration and execution of the program, whatever it turns out to be, and in terms of the international implications and the vulnerabilities uh, of this program for challenge. Uh, I'll just give you a 20-second summary of how CCX did it. Uh, with uh, And by the way, CCX has as members 20% of, uh, of the Dow uh, grouping, uh, so it's a, it's a significant uh, uh, participation of about 100 major companies here in the United States. Uh, CCX simply established a baseline uh, of emissions for, in this case, 1999 to 2001. Uh, and uh, the uh, companies that are participating, over 100 of them, signed up uh, binding commitments, voluntary binding commitments to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions by 6 percent by 2010. In other words, about 1 percent a year for each of those years, with no more than 50 percent of that to be on offsets, and CCX has an offset program. That's going to be another of the controversies in this legislation uh, because people question whether or not the offsets are legitimate. Uh, the fact is uh, under CCX, I can assure you they are uh, because they're done scientifically and they're done very, very carefully. Uh, in this legislation, if it comes to pass, we need to make sure those are done scientifically and very, very carefully uh, as well. But at any rate, that program is working beautifully without any kind of a massive bureaucracy and without massive costs. And, and, uh, uh, and to the best of my knowledge, there's not been a single complaint by any participating firm of those more than 100, 100 major U.S. firms about the way that uh, 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 greenhouse gas emissions program is working. So that's enough on allowances uh, and permits. Uh, my only counsel being, you know, be careful and cautious uh, as you do that. Then you get into the uh, more direct international issues that uh, uh, Sally and Gary were talking about, and that gets into the, this question of uh, do you build import constraints of some sort into the program, potential import constraints, uh, on either uh, leverage or leakage uh, for either leverage or leakage reasons. 
And that subject has been covered very well, so I won't repeat it except to summarize it. Uh, I happen to agree that, in my view, the leakage problems, the likelihood that American firms are going to move offshore uh, if, if we have a greenhouse gas emissions program here that's considerably more demanding than it is in some other uh, countries around the world, particularly developing countries. I think that's been very overblown. Uh, I sit on, uh, as some of you know, a whole host of corporate boards in a whole host of different industries and have done a lot of that over the last 15 years. Uh, I don't think I've ever sat on a single company uh, that would make a a foreign investment decision on that basis. There are just too many other things that are far more important uh, in making those foreign investment decisions uh, than uh, any differences that exist or might exist in a greenhouse gas program. So I don't think the uh, uh, the leakage issue is a significant issue. Leverage is, an, is another matter uh, because I know there are a good many people in Congress who would say we need to apply all the leverage we have to try to get the rest of the world to do what we think they ought to do uh, in the greenhouse gas em- emission area. Uh, will that work with uh, uh, provisions of the kind that are in the waxman markey bill or might be developed in the Senate? Not very darn well, in my judgment. Uh, it, it seems to me that uh, we've, we've gone well past the time when the U.S. can impose its will on the rest of the world uh, in climate change or anything else. I mean, we've certainly discovered that uh, on the trade front in a couple of instances in the in the last year or so, one on Mexican trucks uh, where we had a violation of NAFTA and uh, Mexico has uh, now retaliated against us as a result of our conduct on that particular issue. It happened uh, in the agricultural arena on some of our subsidies on cotton, which were challenged by Brazil in the World Trade Organization. Uh, Brazil won that case and is now... Uh, be, uh, preparing to uh, impose retaliatory uh, uh, measures against the U.S. in that case. Uh, is this likely to occur? Uh, if we uh, are judged as being a violative of world trade rules as a result of our climate change regime, regime you're darn right it is. Uh, somebody in the world is very likely to challenge us, and uh, if they do, they're likely to win. Uh, and uh, if, they, if that be the case, they're very likely to retaliate. So it seemed to me that's too high a price to pay. So then what do you do? Uh, Well, as Gary said, uh, uh, you know, one one thing you can do if if politically it becomes an imperative to put these measures uh, in legislation, and I hope it does not, uh, but uh, one way to do it is to uh, uh, apply a peace clause uh, uh, provision or insert a peace clause provision to which everybody else uh, uh, presumably might agree, uh, and then uh, during the era of the uh, of the peace clause, uh, try to work this out on a, on an amicable basis among the participating uh, entities, uh, the countries, so that uh, uh, that uh, the kind of problems that are, that have been posited here in this discussion uh, don't really take place. Uh, and I think that really gets to the bottom line of this. Ultimately. Uh, this is an issue that's going to have to be negotiated. can't be legislated unilaterally in the U.S. That isn't to say we shouldn't pass legislation in the U.S. If, uh, I think it's, it's obviously uh, clearly up to the U.S. Congress to decide whether or not it, uh, uh, it can develop a, uh, a program in climate change that it considers, it considers uh, uh, effective and desirable for the United States, and if so, it ought to pass it. 
Uh, however, uh, to, to make this be a, a multilateral uh, exercise, which is necessary because this is a global issue. It's not a U.S. issue or any other individual country's issue. It's not even a regional issue. It's a global issue. At some time, point in time, there just has to be a global negotiation. And the question is, how best can that, uh, can that take place? Or how, how can we uh, you know, provide some leadership that might bring that about? Well, it could happen in Kyoto, uh, or uh, that is post-Kyoto in Copenhagen. It could happen post-Copenhagen uh, with Kyoto too, uh, if uh, an agreement could be reached that would be legally binding uh, and also have dispute settlement uh, provisions in it. Uh, and there's nothing that says that uh, that could not occur. As Gary implied to you, however, uh, the chances of that happening in Copenhagen, in my judgment, are are, are very slim. I just don't see that uh, happening. It seems to me that the differences between and among nations on this issue today are just too much too broad uh, to to make that occur. So the question is, what do you do then post-Copenhagen? Uh, do you go back with a, another Copenhagen-type meeting and try to do the same thing? Uh, do you move it over, move this these negotiations into the WTO? If so, do you do it as a part of the Doha round, or do you do it separately uh, from the Doha round with a kind of um, a plurilateral negotiation, if you will, that Gary mentioned uh, here? Uh, my my judgment is that uh, if I were assessing probabilities today, uh, they would probably be that one would move ultimately toward a plurilateral negotiation uh, and one that, uh, that did have dispute settlement provisions built into it uh, and would probably d be done w uh, w within the auspices of the World Trade Organization, uh, although this would be a separate code uh, if it were developed within the WTO. And uh, if that were to occur and we could have uh, an acceptable outcome for all the major nations of the world who are the greenhouse gas emitters, then we'd have something that would be solid, uh, and hopefully it would make any kind of import constraints that, uh, uh, that the U.S. might be contemplating today really irrelevant and, uh, and totally unnecessary. So it seems to me we need to find a way to move down that direction in some manner. That suggests just my final comment that you have to be careful not to be too rigid uh, with any legislation that emerges. One of the risks of legislation uh, is that it, is, uh, it can readily become rigid and can tie the hands of the executive branch in doing the kind of job that I've just been talking about on the negotiating front. If you could do legislation without any follow-up negotiations, then the Congress could be as rigid as it wants to be. But this is not the su subject in which that can, ha can happen. There has to be some flexibility, some running room, given the executive branch to ultimately work this out on, on a global basis. And so my counsel to the uh, staff members who are here today is think about that uh, as you put your legislation together. You can give a lot of guidance to your negotiators, uh, whomever they may be in dealing with the climate change subject, but you don't want to tie their hands with legislation that will preclude them from, from achieving the kind of overall agreement that you might like to have. And that's a little too long, but I'm uh, sorry. My apologies, and I hope we have time for a few questions. Thank you, Dr. Yeider. Uh, we do want to open it up for Q&A, but I just want to make a couple quick comments about uh, cap-and-trade versus carbon tax. Um, it's interesting to me that um, academic, academic economists who 
look closely at energy and climate issues um, tend to come down very strongly on the side of um, a carbon tax if indeed they think anything should be done. Um, whereas uh, it seems like most people who are involved with policy in Washington, D.C. more favor the cap-and-trade. Um, now, there are economists who point out that a well-constructed cap-and-trade system is functionally equivalent to a carbon tax, um, but that it's sort of a hidden tax and it doesn't make explicit the costs that are being imposed upon those sectors of the economy. So just kind of a, an interesting little public choice um, example of uh, something that would be functionally identical, but uh, the way you package it can make a difference politically. So uh, at this point, uh, let's take some questions. Yes, sir. In general, it's very difficult to convince some of our own citizens that we need uh, carbon uh, restrictions or uh, tariffs or any, any issues relating to the environment. How do we convince other countries without using some type of scare tactics to keep reminding them of what the con consequences of our negligence with respect to the environment? Okay. Sally. Okay. Yeah, that seems to be a question from perhaps our climate change scholars rather than our trade policy analysts. What you're asking about is what, why can't we should be doing something and we should be convincing others to do. Uh, I'm not qualified to agree with you on that or disagree with you. I don't know whether Kurt wants to follow up on that. I don't know about scare tactics either. I'm not sure they're going to work for trade or, or for climate. Well, ultimately in the international system, if you want to have something that lasts, um, everybody has to feel like they're benefiting from it um, or else people are going to have an incentive to defect. So um, it seems like convincing other countries to come on board is something they wouldn't want to do otherwise. Uh, would impose some pretty significant significant costs in terms of transfers to other countries, and uh, I'm not really sure whether the American public is willing to accept that. As a negotiator, all I would say is that uh, scare tactics uh, just are are uh, way out of line these days. Uh, this has to be done ultimately on a cooperative basis among all the major players, uh, and that's not going to be easy when you have. Uh, uh, Brazil, and Brazil is represented here today. Brazil uh, and uh, India and China is an example uh, where these are per particularly difficult uh, uh, issues for them as, as well as they are for us uh, and where there are wide differences of opinion between and among those countries. But, uh, you know, that's why negotiators get paid. Uh, you know, that's, uh, uh, you, you know, you want uh, skillful negotiators who can find a way to bring closure on tough issues like this. And uh, that's the challenge, and uh, I happen to think we, if we get the right people uh, focusing on these issues in, uh, in all these major countries, we'll get it done. Yes, sir. happens if you if you're a raw material 
Yeah, I, uh, thanks for that comment. That's often trade policy analysts, and certainly myself, we talk about consumers, people think of end consumers, someone going to Walmart and buying some clothing, it benefits them. But we often overlook, perhaps by accident, the other consumers, which are the people that use steel to produce their products. The whole point of climate change legislation is to make steel, for example, more expensive. That's the point. That's why they want to introduce tariffs. They want to keep it more expensive. They want you using less. They want you producing less. Or they want you doing it in a way that leads to less emissions. Uh, So, yes, that's absolutely true. But if you want to... It's a truism, in fact. If you want to kind of give someone the incentive to use less of something, including in production, you you increase the price. That's the point. Uh, well, if, if that happens, they'll not, obviously not be very pleased. Uh, you know, hopefully there will be a, a recognition for uh, uh, you know, early uh, compliance, if you will, uh, for uh, entities like this. Uh, I don't know whether or not that will emerge in the legislation, but it seems to me that uh, it would be most appropriate to give these folks some credit for um, doing some good things over the last few years. That, however, is a congressional decision. That's not <laughs> not my decision. All right. Well, I guess we'll wrap up for the day. Uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, we will be posting this on our website in a day or so. Um, so if you'd like to share that with all your friends, uh, cato.org slash events slash archives. Um, if you're interested in other Cato work on climate change, we've got stuff on the science, we've got stuff on the economics. See me or Brandon, the gentleman at the door, and uh, we can point you in the right direction for that. So with that, uh, please join me in thanking our speakers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.